This is the Humboldt Chronicles. I am the queen of everything. I gotta be high before I can sway. Lighter tea and let it be. If you a viper. I'm Chuck Rogers with producer Larry Trask and Comet the Radio Dog. The Humboldt Chronicles is made possible by Goat Global Humboldt, Humboldt Urban Market, and Mocha Humboldt. Much appreciation for your support of the Humboldt Chronicles. Larry, whether you call it unjust, unreasonable, or just plain wrong, the stark reality is that cannabis cultivators are playing the farming game under a different set of rules than those who are in traditional agriculture. Yeah, we hear it from almost everyone we talk to in the cannabis industry, especially farmers who struggle with access to loans, can't sell direct to consumers in most cases. They're forced to send their product to distributors who may not pay upon receipt and might even just return the product a year later with no payment at all. So we wondered how an interview with someone in traditional agriculture might differ from an interview with a cannabis farmer. Recently, we talked with Cody Nicholson Stratton of Foggy Bottoms Boys Farm. He's a sixth-generation Eel River Valley farmer whose work includes dairy products, beef cattle, lamb, wool, and chickens. Chickens to the tune of 1,200 hens laying eggs that end up in lots of local grocery stores. We asked Cody questions similar to those we've been asking cannabis farmers for this program. Those eggs that you take to whoever's going to sell them mm-hmm. or, the, or the milk for the Rumiano cheese. Does Rumiano cheese or the grocery stores, do they pay you then? They're both very different structures, mm-hmm. how milk is handled compared to eggs. Eggs, we are paid either on a net 15 or a net 30 day, unless it's a direct-to-consumer transaction, which we have some, but not a lot. Uh, So generally, we're looking at 30 days out that we're going to be paid for the eggs that we have sold to the grocery stores. And then within milk, Rumiano pays us based on 100 weight. So we're paid per 100 pounds of milk produced. And then we would be paid every 15 days, but you're paid on a projection of what you're expected to produce, half, half of what you're expected to produce for the month. And then at the end of the month, they balance that out. So you may end up with what they projected you may end up with less because your cows don't produce as much or maybe you had a great month and you're going to spring flush and you'll end up a little bit higher than the projection Um, but then from that the creamery subtracts all your assessments and fees whereas within the eggs you're required to report all of that to the state independently and pay all your fees and assessments to the state direct from the farm. But so. they don't just return the product to you, say, six months later and say, we, we couldn't sell it? Sorry. No. So they would not return the product to you. The eggs, obviously, if the grocery stores aren't moving them, then your orders so your orders per week are going to change. So mm-hmm. every week we're dropping off eggs to the grocery stores. If those orders, if there's a demand for them, then we can increase it. If not, then we end up with a decrease in our orders and generally then we end up making donations to food for people so um, whereas with milk the demand for milk is global and so even though we produce for a small local processor we're going to be impacted by the global markets pretty heavily and if there is a decline in the demand for milk 
then we would see that either as a decrease in our pay rate or they will place quotas on us. So we would be told that we need to decrease production. How would it work for you if you had to work basically on what amounted to consignment and you didn't know if you were going to get paid or when? The idea being like you're consigning it and then we're being paid for the product at the end? Maybe. Maybe. Obviously, that'd be difficult because you have mortgages. You're going to have, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're looking at the dairy we have not just mortgage, we would also have all of our feed costs, which are increasing pretty significantly currently. Um, we would have you know, chemical costs for the milk barns, the sanitization, um, all of your fees that you're expected to pay. So it would be pretty difficult to operate on a consignment basis from that standpoint. We also asked about pricing and planning ahead in traditional ag and the extent to which he can depend on a payday when harvest time comes around. Dairy is sort of interesting in the world of agriculture in that as a producer, you are a price taker. You have no negotiating power on your price and you have no capacity to really determine what is going to be taken. So there are farms that might produce to multiple processors because a processor will tell them, well, I will take so many loads of milk a week. So they might pick them up twice a week. And then they'll have another processor that picks them up one day a week. And so those pricings are going to be dependent on what each of those processors pays. So you might, on some of these farms, you might have multiple prices depending on where your milk is going. There can also be pooling where you would produce to a co-op. And then the co-op is really just a paper co-op. And they're trying to sell the milk. They find a home for it. So they find truckloads and then they're going to try to find places for it to go so you might produce for a specific co-op like dairy farmers of america and then they would find homes for all that milk where it's going to go and be processed whereas with us and we're fairly different in that we are rumiano producers which is a private company and so we know exactly where our milk goes and it's always going to rumiano when you're making your plans and you're anticipating how much milk you're going to produce in a given month you can be reasonably sure that you'll be able to sell that milk, right? You're never in a situation in which you've produced a bunch of milk and then you find out, oh, there's nobody who's going to buy this. Uh, so that could be questionable. So for us as Rumiano producers, yes, we know Rumiano is going to come pick up our milk every month. That's not necessarily the case always for every dairy producer because they may not have, if you're a paper co-op and for some reason something happens on the market and there isn't a demand, then the milk might not get picked up or it might be picked up at a significantly reduced price. So, um, and then obviously like with COVID and everything happening, that changed how everything operated. So we saw a lot of situations where milk might've been diverted or in some cases whole tanks were just dumped because there was nowhere for it to go. Um, So there is always that risk. There's also the risk of, you know, if we are, contracted with a processor and that's who we're producing for there is the chance that they may choose to change the direction of their company or change the contract so they might determine that they no longer want producers in the north coast region which has happened Um, and so we'll see processors pull out usually they give you 30 days to try to find a home for your milk but that's not always an option so you may lose your contract and have nowhere for it to go Um, which we've seen not only in Humboldt, but Sonoma has been hit particularly hard with that in the past couple years where companies have left and then dairies just ultimately go out of business because there is no one to pick up those contracts. Are you able to sell any of the products that you produce on your farm directly to the consumer? 
Yes. So our lamb is all direct to consumer. Um, our eggs, we have wholesale sales to grocery stores, but then we also do direct to consumer as well as to restaurants. Uh, our beef that we produce, we sell some into other grass-fed programs as calves, and then we'll finish some of our calves as well, usually harvesting three to five head a month, and that is sold either um, in beef shares, you know, eights, quarters, holes, halves, or a la carte, so individual cuts. But all that has to be USDA processed. So the real limiting factor there is processing capacity where we can actually get it harvested and have it under USDA inspection. With milk, because of the regulations around milk, it's extremely difficult mm -hmm. to have the ability to process and sell direct to consumer. Um, raw milk is not legal in Humboldt County. Even if it is in a county that it is legal, there's a lot of regulation around raw milk sales. Um, and testing, so having the infrastructure to actually process milk, whether you're processing pasteurized or raw, um, is there's a large capital expenditure that goes into setting up those facilities. Within Humboldt, there is one dairy that is processing and selling milk on site. Um, it's Ferrera & Son in Arcata, and they do glass bottles, and they have their own pasteurizer, and they're set up to pasteurize and sell their own milk. Um, Alexander's have their own brand and they sell milk, but theirs has to be trucked out of the area to be processed and then comes back. For the products that you can sell directly to the consumer in a fairly easy manner, do you develop regular customers who prefer to oh, yeah. uh, come to you that way? You Absolutely, do. Yes. So we have a lot of regular customers that come weekly or biweekly. Some choose to do monthly purchases. So they'll purchase a month's worth of beef or lamb. Um, we have other customers that might just come for special events, but we know that you know every year at Passover they're going to purchase a leg of lamb. So there are certain customers that we kind of can expect to come. Then there's a lot of you know customers that maybe are tourists coming through the area and will purchase um, beef or lamb or eggs, yarn, uh, or they're just looking for a gift. So you know holiday sales are always the best. And this, the uh, part of your business that's direct to consumer, that's a relatively recent development? Yeah, so we had developed the fiber initially and then started doing lamb. Um, and then we actually were setting up to start a direct consumer sales with beef right when lockdown happened for COVID. So we had beef in the freezers. We were fully set up to start shipping, um, kind of planning on modeling after five Marys in Siskiyou County and then instead pivoted entirely to just local sales and have remained doing local sales. Um, shipping meat out of Humboldt County is incredibly difficult uh, and it very rarely makes it to the location still cold. So uh, it's just not a business model that we're interested in pursuing and we have enough support within Humboldt to make selling beef and lamb, eggs, a viable option for us. When you introduced these direct-to-consumer sales, did you have to go through any type of permitting or regulatory process? Was there Were there, were there taxes and fees involved with that? So within the direct-to-consumer part, that's a bit different. Um, so you would have, it's required to be under USDA inspection. So if we're selling meat, it all has to be USDA inspected. So you're going to see most of your fees and assessments on the end of harvest. So the infrastructure is already set up and pretty established there as to how that's going to operate. So you would you would take your animal to a USDA plant, assuming you can get them in. You can get the space to harvest them, which they're 
heavily impacted, so there's not a lot of space. Um, we're scheduled more than a year out, so all of our harvests for the next year and a half are already calendared. Um, and we continually have to keep adding on. And there's no room to change. So if we wanted to, say, increase by one or two steers a month or five steers a month, there's regardless of the number, we can't do that. We are set with that number of steers for that time. So then when we harvest those animals, we pay the fees around um, inspection that we are responsible for. There's The challenge here is that like eggs are under the quality whereas within USDA and FDA whereas meat is wholesome so meat is generally inspection is more covered by taxes like taxpayers we're paying for food safety whereas within eggs if you have USDA inspection you are responsible as the farm operator to cover all costs associated with that so you pay for the USDA inspector you have to have um the facilities set up for inspection meet all of the criteria for having a USDA inspector on site. Uh, if you're a meat processor, because we aren't processing, we're having Redwood Meat and Eureka do that. They have to have the infrastructure in place. They have to have the you know independent bathroom for the meat inspector. They have to have their own office. They have to do all of those things. So obviously, we absorb some of those costs in the you know cost of doing business with them. Whereas if we were to be under USDA inspection for eggs, we would have to then cover those costs. Um, with eggs, however, most of the time those are passed to the state. So then we operate under the California Egg Quality Assurance Program. And so we operate within their framework. So we pay fees to them. So for every case of eggs sold, we have fees that we pay. We have fees that we pay for inspections, which are just random. Um, so within the Egg Quality Assurance a lot of times it's done at the grocery store end, but then it'll also periodically be on the farm side. So it kind of varies. Um, and then you would also have, you know, depending on your county and your city, and this is where obviously this gets complicated, is that every county handles how meat is sold a little differently or eggs are sold. So you might be pretty well set on what federally is required, what's required by the state, but then whether or not the health department needs to come inspect you is going to vary by if you're under the jurisdiction of your county, under the jurisdiction of the city. And so you have to figure out who you are inspected by and then what their independent requirements are and meet all of their requirements. Um, and that's going to vary state to state, county by county, city by city. So uh, that makes it very complicated to talk to farms that are doing it in another place because... You know, our friends in Idaho have completely different standards than we do, and our friends in Grass Valley, California, have absolutely different standards than we have here. So we can't, like, compare apples to apples. Just out of curiosity, I mean, that's a very complex regulatory environment that you have to negotiate. Who helps you with that? How do you learn how to operate in that type of environment? Dairy is pretty set, um, and we have a trade association that helps kind of oversee that and they help you navigate the regulation around them. They're really good at that. Then within like, if you're doing niche meat sales or direct consumer sales, your best option is UCCE. So the cooperative extension for your county, hopefully they have some sort of idea of how to help you. Um, but that's going to vary. Humboldt has a pretty strong uh, ag extension program that's pretty well versed in 
helping direct to consumer farmers, whereas some counties don't. So if you're trying to set up, then you're left to podcasts and searching the internet and talking to farmers and then calling the city or the county and trying to navigate whatever structure they have that you're going to have to operate within. Um, So the direct sales can be fairly complicated and hard to kind of figure out if you don't have connections. If you're new, new to ag, it can be really challenging because you don't have the connections and the relationships built in the agricultural community already to really navigate those. And the consequences of getting it wrong sometimes are fines? Fines, yeah. So fines, um, condemnment of the... So with like meat, if you were to not be operating within it, depending on how severe your violation is, they could just condemn your entire inventory, um, which then means it can't be sold. So you would have the option of eating it yourself, but you can't now retail it, which is a pretty significant loss. Um, yes, but generally fines are kind of where you end up at. And then there's also all sorts of permitting, right? Permits for pretty much anything you want to do. Is that right? Yeah. So the dairy, I guess dairy is the side where we see a lot of permitting. Um, you know, you have water quality permits, air quality permits, environmental health permitting, coastal commission, then occupational safety and things like that. Yeah. yeah. So any of those permits and the fees that are associated with them. And then there's all the like, just even outside of permitting, there's the assessments that are added on for marketing or um, for different councils that exist that are deducted from your pay from the creamery or the processor. So you pay like a national milk marketing promotion, a state marketing promotion, Um, there's a beef council, there's a cattle council. So there's all these additional things that are added on. It would seem that farmers, like most other business people, would have access to government-backed loans and would be able to sell their products across state lines. Well, it depends on what you're growing and selling. In the cannabis world, those options are not available. But what about in traditional agriculture? We'll get to that next. You're listening to the Humboldt Chronicles. Back in a moment. Welcome back to the Humboldt Chronicles. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Cody Nicholson Stratton of Foggy Bottoms Boys Farm here in Ferndale. And we're drawing a contrast between how business is done in traditional agriculture and in the cannabis world. We pick up our conversation with Cody with a question about debt and access to loans. You mentioned debt service. Um, I assume that you would be eligible for, if you needed it, uh, some sort of agricultural loan or even a small business loan. But there are some in the agricultural industry who are not. Yeah. So you can, um, and it's going to obviously, you have the option, if you qualify, um, to have work with, you know, ag credit or FSA has some loans, depending on where you fall um, eligibility wise. Um, And so we've worked with ag credit as uh, a lender. Um, Some people don't, and they just work with like hard money money lenders. it kind of depends on you know financially where you are as a business um, within dairy and what the risk is that a lender is willing to take um, mm-hmm. because dairy can be fairly high risk, especially given how volatile the markets are and the fluctuations within them. There are cases where they may just opt not to fund you or they give you a loan because it might be too high risk for them to take on. So, But at least it's an option. It's an option. It's there. Yeah. yeah. 
So it would depend on the agricultural product you produce. Um, so generally those are like lines of credit um, that you would operate on that you have access to and you can utilize and then you need to pave the way most ag lenders do that is by the end of the year you need to zero out your line of credit or your uh so you would zero it out or your interest rate becomes incredibly high we're and we're talking like in excess of 20 percent um so you would want to make sure that you zero out before the end of the year um depending on the commodity or the product that is common. So within crops, we see that as a really common practice that you farms run on lines of credit because you're going to have this huge expense at the beginning of the year. You're going to buy seed, you're going to buy whatever fertilizers you're using or compost. And so you're going to have a really major output early on. And then you, know, you sell all your product at the end of the year. And so then you would pay off your line of credit, you'd pay out service, whatever debt you have. And then whatever is left is what you're going to operate on for the remaining part of the year until you once again start that cycle over again um then within dairy we and like direct market beef you're seeing you have like a constant turnover so there's product being produced every day um so it kind of depends on the model whether or not farms do that some farms still operate with lines of credit because maybe you have uh, a high input time of year like summer when you're irrigating um we don't use a line of credit because we prefer not to have that hanging over our head at the end of the year. So mm -hmm. instead, we balance that out by putting everything away into savings so we have operating capital available to us if we need that. Um, within a lot of the agricultural commodities, the challenge there is that you might have a really good year, but that's going to be followed generally by several years of really suppressed pricing. Um, and so in some cases, you might be operating under the cost of production for two or three years before the markets take an upturn and you would see good pricing again that allows you to service more debt or to put money back into savings. What about selling your products across state lines? Any restrictions there? Yes. Um, so, so the way this would work is within meat, we can because we are USDA. Um, if we were selling pastured poultry, absolutely not, because pastured poultry, unless it's harvested under USDA inspection, which is generally not, most pastured poultry producers operate under a federal exemption for fewer than 10,000 birds, then you are confined to whatever state you're in. Um, and we've done pastured birds in the past. Then with milk, because it's under federal inspection, you're able to engage in commerce and it can move. Um, if your county were, say, you're operating uh, raw milk under the state's regulatory structure, then no, it's not going to leave the state. Um, so for us, our meat can leave. Our eggs need to stay within the state uh, because we operate under the California inspection system. Then also just California being California, what is allowed into the state is different as well. So with Prop 12, for example, any eggs coming into California now have to meet Prop 12 requirements. Which, which is what? Um, so the Prop 12 was housing uh, spatial requirements and animal welfare. So birds need a certain amount of access, the ability to exhibit natural behaviors, all good things. Um, but it just means that any it limits the eggs that can come in. It also applied to veal, which honestly was kind of a moot point at that time. Um, the veal industry, such as it still exists, had moved away from the kind of housing structures that they didn't want. Most cows are group housed. Uh, and then 
it also applied to hogs. And so pork is really the one where I think most people are seeing it. We don't eat pork, but people I think are seeing that on the price of bacon going up um, just because the amount of pork that is allowed into the state is limited now based on what hog processors nationwide have Mm -hmm. decided to change their housing and their management to meet California standards. So it sounds like, at least as far as, as, as beef, the fact that there is nationwide USDA standards kind of eases interstate transactions. Yeah. So, I mean, as long as you have the federal framework, the challenge within beef and that federal framework is that there are not a lot of small processors left. So you're looking at the big four, handling about 80% of the beef produced in the country, JBS, Tyson, Smithfield, and all those are large companies, generally foreign-owned, and those handle most of the beef. They process most of the beef. They own all the large packing plants. And so you have just a small number of small processors that are able to serve farm like us. So we work with redwood meat in Eureka. They're only able to harvest a few animals a day. So there's only limited capacity. If we were going to go elsewhere now there, or for some reason we couldn't use redwood meat, our next closest processor would be uh, Wairika if we could get into there or Stockton. Um, So finding processing, if you're a small producer is pretty difficult and then getting the space to actually do that. Um, so there is talk of trying to, you know, and build like statewide frameworks for meat processing. Uh, and there's been a lot of talk in the Senate about, you know, setting that up and various bills have been floated. But it always comes down to public safety as well as then that meat no longer has the ability for commerce. So if, you know, California has a framework for processing in California licensed and regulated processing shops or butcher shops, then that can't go to Oregon. It can't go to Nevada. Mm-hmm. So you said four basic processors around the country. Is that four companies, four that, companies? Yeah. Was so, it always like that? No. Um, and so, what led to it becoming that way? Was it consolidation? Or, it's just economic drivers. Yep. So yeah. as regulatory, regulatory, um, There is the Packers and Stalkers Act, which uh, cattle producers have some very strong feelings about. Um, And most would tell you that it's not being enforced. I would tend to probably agree. Um, But that's allowed for a lot of consolidation within the industry. Um, And so you now have really centralized companies that have consolidated because there's economic benefits to having one large plant that processes 2,000 steers a day. And, you know, a person, instead of being a butcher, that's a skilled trade where you are an expert in breaking down a whole animal, like if we were going to go to Ferndale Meat in Ferndale and, you know, pick up a steak and they've, you know, Kurt has broke down a whole steer and it's really kind of an amazing process. Instead, you would go there and, you know, it's a line and someone has, you know, they make one cut over and over again. Um, And so, obviously, we know from like the assembly line on four, that that's a very efficient way to construct something, but it has a lot of issues with that system. Such as? Such as, you know, obviously from an employment side, there's um, challenges with employees having any sort of satisfaction from the job, the working conditions um, with COVID happening. Obviously there were a lot of challenges there because now you mm-hmm. have to spread people out. They're not built for that. Um, then you have 
a few companies that control the majority of the beef produced. So they have the ability to set pricing um, and kind of determine where meat is coming from, where beef is coming from. They can change, you know, most beef. Um, so if you buy beef from us, it's going to be dry aged. So it hangs a minimum of 14 to 21 days, um, which adds the flavor profile. It changes um, the moisture content of a steak. It makes it more tender. But obviously, if you're processing thousands of steers a day, you're not going to be dry aging. So they do what's called wet aging. So they break them down and basically box it up, vacuum pack it, and it gets sent off. So instead of that 14-day period, 21-day period, that adds to your flavor profile, you now just like moving it out as fast as you can. In most industries, cost of doing business is a major concern for all operations. Part of that overhead cost is buying insurance, a safeguard against the unknowns of the future. Insurance, though, is not always easy to access for those in the cannabis business. Is traditional ag any different on that score? What types of insurance do you have access to? Like if a, if a virus comes and wipes out your entire herd or all your chickens die or something like that, do you have some kind of protection in that situation? Um, so their insurance within animal ag is kind of different. You might have like a disaster insurance, but like if we have an outbreak of, so say there was a Australia is experiencing a hoof and mouth outbreak right now. So if the U.S. were to have that, there isn't really an insurance policy that farmers can carry that's going to insure us against that. So if the federal government or the state government were to come in and say, okay, there is a disease outbreak and we are going to depopulate all the farms within this zone, there's not an insurance policy that you're guaranteed they're going to cover you for. Um, there are other insurance policies you can buy into. So we can buy like a margin protection um, which is within dairy. Uh, and so that generally says like if you're if the federal milk price falls below this point and feed costs are at this point and there's a few other factors that go into it, it will trigger a payout for you. Um, which if you're a Midwestern farmer is probably pretty great. If you're a California farmer, you're going to be operating below the cost of production well before that's ever going to be triggered because it's set by a federal, the federal milk price and feed prices at the Chicago Exchange. So feed costs in California, all of our expenses, labor are all significantly higher than they'd be experiencing in the Midwest. So by the time that policy would trigger a payout, you've already been losing money for months. Um, you know, you can choose to buy it. We generally don't because we buy the policy and then just end up paying into a policy that really doesn't benefit us. Um, there's like our, there's also drought relief um, insurance that you can buy. Uh, and, you know, this year, that's probably a pretty good policy for most farms. Um, but once again, it's one of those things that it's not a guarantee. It's not like you're going to pay into it and see any return. Uh, it's kind of dependent on what's happening nationwide. So mm -hmm. once within any of those frameworks you're seeing, especially here in California, just the industry is so varied from one part of the state to the next that generally it's not built to be specific to a one region or one climate. So we're going to have programs that are structured for Central Valley confined animal feeding operations that really don't apply to a pasture-based dairy in Humboldt County. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Cody Nicholson Stratton of Foggy Bottoms Boys Farm.
and we're highlighting the differences between traditional agriculture and cannabis farming. After a break, we'll ask about the pros and cons of doing business in Humboldt and the big question, do those in traditional ag consider wheat farming to be agriculture? Back with that in just a minute. for listening to the Humboldt Chronicles. Continuing our discussion with Cody Nicholson Stratton of Foggy Bottoms Boys Farm. We get to the reckoning now. Is cannabis cultivation considered agriculture? And what are the pros and cons of doing business in Humboldt County? Putting the good and the bad on the scales and seeing how they tip. So advantages, we live in Humboldt, right? That's, I mean, there is definitely an advantage to the fact that we are just the quality of life living in Humboldt. I would not like to live in Turlock or Modesto. That is not something that appeals to me. Um, so because of that, we make do with all of the disadvantages we get, which are, you know, shipping, trucking, um, dairy, within dairy, you pay the shipping and trucking both directions. So we pay the trucking on all of our product from our farm to the processor. Um, we also pay a make allowance. So we they assess a fee from us for the part of the cost of producing it into a final good. Um, we also pay the trucking on the feed coming in. So we only buy grain, but we're going to pay for trucking on grain. Um, if you are buying hay, then you're paying trucking on hay. All that's expensive, particularly now, increasingly expensive. And getting into Humboldt, that makes it complicated. Um, distribution is a challenge because you know, if we were to say want to expand our egg production, we've had other grocers approach us about supplying eggs on a more statewide basis, which could be a great thing for the overall sustainability of our farm. We could diversify more. We could really use more chickens within our pasture rotation system, but distribution becomes a real challenge getting anything out of Humboldt, particularly in winter. So there's just a lot of challenges, you know, meat, obviously, like I said, we quit pretty quickly on the idea of shipping meat out because it just doesn't make it. Um, so yeah, there are definitely challenges. There are a lot of increased costs in operating within Humboldt, but the quality of life of living in Humboldt so compared to another part of the state is from our viewpoint worth it. In discussions that you might have with uh, other folks in what I guess we might call traditional agriculture, does anybody think that cannabis farmers are not agriculture? I would say that that is generally kind of a dying viewpoint within mm -hmm. the industry. Um, you know, there's always going to be, within any group, the people that kind of hang on to whatever the view of the past was. Sure, you or, never get 100% no, in a group of people. But, yeah. you know, most people view cannabis farmers as they are farmers. Like, they mm -hmm. are producing a crop, so they are farmers. That's kind of become, in most of my discussions with... So most producers. of the people you know, is would it be fair to say, would support federal legislation that made it easier for them to do business, especially in places like this? I mean... Personally, I don't see a reason that we shouldn't have federal legislation at this point. It, mm -hmm. it makes sense, but that's my personal view is that yeah. I see no reason not to. For folks who are listening, how can they find out more about your farm and uh, and, and your operations? Yeah, you can find us um, on social media. We are on Instagram and Facebook as Foggy Bottoms Boys. Um, on TikTok, I operate as the Unorthodox Farm Daddy. Um, and then we also have a website, foggybottomsboys.com. So. I would encourage people to go look at your uh, your kitchen videos because oh yeah yeah we do awesome. yeah we are on YouTube as well with some recipes and cooking so we spend some time in the kitchen well 
I think, you know, one, one thing that I took away from our discussion with Cody is that even in traditional agriculture, it's not just kick back and, you know, watch the wheat grow and wait for the money to roll in. That's for sure. They've got their own set of challenges, both market challenges, uh, regulatory challenges. You heard all of the, the different fees and assessments and different rules and protocols, and it's, mm-hmm. it's different for him in one county as it is in another. True. So there's all those things, you know, so agriculture basically is not an easy business. That's right. Uh, but you're, the cannabis farmer is dealing with all of those things, which just come along with, you know, with agriculture in general, plus mm-hmm. all the stuff that, that Cody doesn't have to deal with. That's right. You know, the other thing, too, uh, this struck me. Every time we posed a question to Cody, at least he could think of options or a direction to go for whatever the issue might be, whether it was loans or selling in some other state, insurance, whatever it was, at least he could think of a direction to go. Cannabis farmers can't always do that. Right. Right. Or, or even if they can, it's, it's more difficult. Yep. I mean, you know, Cody could go, you know, to, to the bank and, mm-hmm. and, and open a bank account. And, and while I believe that some people in the cannabis industry have found ways to have access to at least some banking services, mm-hmm. it's not as easy. No. And look at, look, at, you know, look at the decision that they made for their farm you know, not, not too long ago. Hey, maybe we should, maybe we should sell directly to consumers with our, our fiber and our yeah. eggs. So they just make the decision to do it. They, they, they get whatever required permits and they proceed. Right. And you can go right now down the road. And, and buy a side of beef. Yeah, you can think of ideas like that and know that you can pursue them if you want to. And if you pencil it out and it makes sense, you can do that. Right. Again, cannabis farmers just don't have those kinds of options. Right. And, there, I, you know, I think there's always, that's always going to be the case in, in some ways just because of the nature of cannabis. Mm-hmm. The same way that, yeah. you know, selling Coca-Cola is probably easier than selling Budweiser. Right. Uh, but it does feel like not all of the obstacles that are in front of cannabis farmers have to be. Yeah. Is it your sense after this discussion with Cody that this just underscores the need for some sort of federal intervention to create at least some sort of nationwide protocol to allow cannabis farmers to do business in at least somewhat the same way that traditional agriculture does? It seems like for sure it would help. I mean, there are a lot of unknowns, and it obviously depends on how it's structured exactly. But we heard, uh, you know, from Cody with, the, you know, for the selling of beef, there were nationwide USDA standards yep. that he knew as long as I'm in compliance with these nationwide standards, that's going to help me if I do want to sell interstate. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't exist now at all, obviously. For of course, cannabis. the flip side of that, as he also mentioned, is that in the beef industry, uh, now it's been consolidated to the point where there are, I think he said, just four large companies controlling the whole thing. That could happen in any business that's able to uh, market itself nationwide, right? Yeah. I mean, I, and I think... So I, that's a danger. I think that has happened in almost every industry. Yeah. There's, you know, in a lot of industries, there's some room for, you know, the niche or the specialty mm-hmm. operator. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that will remain the case for cannabis. But, you know, already there's consolidation in the cannabis yeah. industry. Yeah. 
I'm Chuck Rogers with producer Larry Trask. This edition of the Humboldt Chronicles will be posted soon at 941lounge.com, lostcoastoutpost.com, and at iTunes for listening and downloading. Thanks to our guest, Cody Nicholson Stratton of Foggy Bottoms Boys Farm. And we send much appreciation to our sponsors, Goat Global Humboldt, Humboldt Urban Market, and Mocha Humboldt. We'll be back with the Humboldt Chronicles at 6 p.m. on the third Wednesday of September. So we'll see you next time, September the 21st at 6 o'clock.